Welcome to the Iowa Idea Podcast. Join host Matt Arnold for in-depth conversations with artists, designers, entrepreneurs, and civic leaders as he explores how they approach their craft and represent a modern version of the Iowa Idea. This podcast tells the stories of Iowa natives, transplants, and friends who demonstrate the Iowa idea in the 21st century. Don't let anybody take your voice away. Speak your truth and see where it lands. Powerful words from my next guest, Vivian Castillo. Vivian is a user experience researcher with over eight years of psychology and research experience spanning multiple contexts, cultures, and industries whose work and opinions have been written about in Slate, Fortune, Huffington Post, and Elle magazine. Prior to becoming a user experience researcher, she worked primarily in the arenas of human services and counseling, where she tackled issues like shame, empathy, vulnerability, and compassion. She's also the founder of Humanity Centered, an online course and community aimed at helping UX professionals learn how to lean into new conversations around deeper, human-centered issues, so they can understand how to craft equitable, inclusive experiences, know how to navigate UX topics that don't have easy or obvious answers, and transform the status quo of what it means to be human-centered in our professional and personal lives. We discuss Vivian's journey into UX research, the important work she's doing with Humanity Centered, and her academic background in theology. We dig deep into the importance of being humanity-centered versus human-centered, why self-care is essential for UX practitioners, and the need for genuinely inclusive and supportive experiences. Vivian shares the importance of building foundational skills, vulnerability, as well as cultural humility. I appreciated Vivian's framing regarding cultural humility, human-centered design, and true diversity and inclusion efforts. It was an honor having Vivian on the podcast. I was first introduced to her intellect and insight when I read the introduction she wrote for a design ethics book. Since then, we were able to meet at a conference, and I love her powerful and thoughtful voice on Twitter and LinkedIn. Check out the links to some of her talks in the episode description. I want to thank Vivian for sharing her time and insights, and I hope you enjoy the episode. Vivian, thank you so much for joining me on the Iowa Idea podcast. It's an absolute pleasure and honor to have you here. So I'm so glad you could make the time. If you don't mind for uh, guests of our uh, audience, could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, absolutely. And again, thanks for making the time. I really appreciate it. So uh, yeah, my name is Vivian Castillo. I mean, first and foremost, I'm, I'm based in Chicago and I love Chicago. And so it's important yeah. to know that about me, that Chicago pride of uh, for the city runs very deep. But, um, you know, my background is originally in, in counseling and in human services and uh, specifically working, you know, within the realm of, of trauma and addiction counseling. And, you know, I made a career switch into the tech industry a few years or so ago when I had a mentor really encouraged me to find a creative hobby with a beginning and an end because, you know, with, with counseling, you never quite finish the work. It's always something else. It's always a revolving door. And so initially, you know, at the time I was living on the East coast and, um, you know, thought that I would teach myself how to code so I can bond with my dad who's a developer back in Chicago. And, 
as I was looking at different programs online to learn more about coding, discovered something called, you know, UX design and research. And I had never heard of that. And so I just started digging a little bit deeper to understand what that is. And I started to look deeper, I just realized like, wow, like here's something where I could bridge my love for people with technology and business. And uh, decided to, to make a career switch into that. Um, you know, for me, I, I didn't want to go back to school. I didn't want to give Sally Mae another dime. <laughs> and so I figured that a lot of things that I, you know, that I know as a therapist could easily be translated over into being a researcher. It was just about understanding semantics and how the industry talked about things. And so, so that's, uh, that's where I got my start in this industry. Um, you know, was that a small digital agency in Philly? ended up working at Google and Weight Watchers for a little bit. And at that point I was in New York City and just had to get back to Chicago. And, and so now, you know, I, I work back in Chicago, work at a, a large um, cloud company and I'm, I'm doing a lot of work with executives where I'm helping them to really understand their, their end users, their customers. I'm leveraging research to help them Think about a more holistic human-centered approach to business and strategy development and how tech and products can empower that. So that's where I'm at right now. And, you know, in, in, in the free time that I do have, I, I'm also building um, a business uh, called Humanity Centered. It's an online course and community for the UX uh, professionals who are interested in doing the personal work required to do our best professional work. And... That's a super high level, short version of me and what I'm doing, and what I'm about. That's great. No, thank you uh, for sharing that. Yeah, because uh, there are so many different different elements there that I want to dig into. Uh, so I think I was first introduced to you through your your forward uh, in Ruined by Design, and mm. and then I was lucky enough to meet you in Toronto at the UX Research Collectives conference and and there uh i believe the talk was the uh the siren call of self-neglect uh for for ux researchers um it was and it was a great talk um and without me assuming and connecting the dots what what brought you to to kind of uh spend some time bringing that because it was a great talk but what what motivated you to do that yeah, you know, for me, I when I had switched into UX and what initially drew me was this idea of being human-centered and working closely with people. And, you know, the longer that I started to be in the industry, the more I started to realize that there were some incredible things around the ways that we interact with people and the role of extending empathy in our jobs that, that weren't necessarily being addressed. Um, and so, you know, I was talking to folks who had left the industry, folks who were um, debating leaving the industry. And I started to hear a little bit about their stories and hear about how they even navigated engaging participants, engaging stakeholders. I started to recognize it as, wow, like people are experiencing compassion fatigue and burnout. And as I started to, to process and talk to folks about that, I realized that a lot of them didn't necessarily know what that was. Um, but, and on top of that, even just understanding, you know, trauma. And I started to realize, especially when I talked to folks who were in the nonprofit realm, working with vulnerable communities, a lot of the things and symptoms that they were describing were, you know, what within the human service field is known as vicarious trauma. 
And so I just started to see this and, you know, I was looking around and realizing that there wasn't a lot of people talking about this and, and giving support around the importance of, of self-care when you're in a role where extending empathy is a key aspect of what you do. And so that's what kind of birthed this talk and, you know, yeah. just wanting to be able to, to help folks, you know, have a more sustainable career as they take care of themselves and care about other people. Thank you. Uh, and then uh, want to want to talk about you and you had mentioned humanity centered. And so this is this is fairly new. But uh, do you mind telling listeners uh, about it and why humanity centered is so important, both in general and important to you? Yeah, absolutely. You know, humanity centered. Uh, so we're in our first our first cohort, which, you know, launched September 27th. We have about 155 people in there. And we are currently opening registration for our November cohort. And, you know, for me, I, I, like many others, just got tired of looking at design Twitter and seeing the same cyclical arguments over the same basic things. And for me, you know, I've always been, you know, there's a time and place to learn about personas. There's a time and place to learn about, you know, jobs to be done. But for me, I've always been interested in the deep, deeper human undercurrent that really motivates and guides our work. And so I wanted to create uh, an online course and community where we can start to grapple with these things in a more supportive and encouraging environment. Things like, what are practical ways to craft genuinely inclusive and equitable user experiences? Or how do I increase my ability to to influence decision makers and advocate for people in profit-centric conversations or helping people understand, you know, how do you develop the language and the confidence to talk about human-centered issues like privilege in UX and white supremacy and design systems and ableism and diversity, equity, and inclusion in the workplace with colleagues and peers. Um, and so wanting to create this course that we really do a deep dive into a lot of these issues, but also just getting super practical about what does this look like when you start doing the work to develop this in your personal life? And then how do you then tie it to the way it shows up in your professional life? Thanks. Uh, and with the first cohort, any any surprises? Because like with my kind of it, it, an innovation and design, you know, I'm always interested like prototyping. And once something gets out there, were there any any uh, surprises for you so far? Yeah. So you know, part of this cohort, if you want to participate in this community, there's a level of pre work that you have to do. And you know, we give people two options when it comes to pre reading or a pre listening when it comes to audiobook and. You know, I think what I've been the most surprised about is the level of vulnerability and candor and care in this community. It it kind of overwhelmed me at first. Like I was like, wow, these people really are willing to go there. They're willing to be vulnerable. They're willing to admit where they're learning, where they need growth. But then more importantly, I'm seeing other folks being able to jump in and support each other in that. You know, I don't think a lot of social media platforms where we're having these conversations, whether that be Facebook or Twitter, are conducive to encouraging experiences where you're able to, to recognize that you're on this journey with other people and it's not just a solo thing. And so that's been probably like one of the biggest surprises. Um, and I think as well, what, I, what I've loved is, again, the, the hunger for folks to, to, 
to continue educating themselves and really strengthening that self-education muscle, which I think when you're doing more of that deeper human-centered work, it's really important to, to flex and build. Yeah, a few a few things that I'd like to to dig in there too, because uh, even even that notion of building uh, just individually, I and I, I feel like may, maybe this is overlapping too with some of your themes like related to self care, but it it sometimes it's really hard to learn or be reflective if we're always on the go, and also mm. just the power of pausing and reflecting. Uh, so I was really really excited to hear that, and then. You mentioned vulnerability and support, which I feel I'm I'm becoming as I as I get a little bit older, and also as I'm doing the podcast and talking to people, is maybe one of the most mature things we can do as people is be vulnerable, right? And usually, you know, yeah. I was when I when I was raised and early in my career, vulnerability was weakness, right? And rather than like having strong mentors that are vulnerable, like maybe I don't know, but let's find out, or I made a mistake, but being vulnerable still seems challenging. Uh, so why is vulnerability so important for, for community? Yeah, I mean, I think vulnerability, and again, like I've just been thinking lately around um, when it comes to these skills that we're having workshops about, we learn in these grad programs, I'm not seeing a lot of conversation around um, those softer skill developments, which I personally prefer to call, you know, foundational skills. Yeah. Um, and for me, foundational skills include things like how, how to be vulnerable, how to apologize and why does that matter? You know, how to listen. And I think vulnerability, what it really does is it, it creates space for you to step outside of yourself, to step outside of, you know, uh, fear of being judged, fear of being critiqued, so that you can actually welcome in and create the space for support and encouragement that you need in order to, to move to a, a next level of understanding. And I think vulnerability is such an important uh, aspect of our work. And it's something that we, we tend to demand of our stakeholders and our clients and our participants, but we rarely put you know, that demand and that need on ourselves. Um, and I think that's just a part of, of doing the work and making sure that we're able to grow and, you know, in humility and, and being able to have courageous conversations about difficult topics. Yeah. Uh, and, and, uh, maybe, maybe I'll shift gears just a little bit, uh, just as you said, with difficult topics, I, um, uh, uh, on, on social media, when I see on, on LinkedIn and Twitter, uh, you're, for me, uh, uh, uh great strong voice about diversity and inclusion and and also um uh i would say you know, to the white design community on maybe things not to do or say right now especially in these these challenging times right uh so uh can you talk to me a little bit more about the importance of diversity and inclusion yeah and I think I'm going to take it a step back and talk about you know the importance of developing cultural humility and competencies because Thank for you. me, you know, when it comes to diversity and inclusion, I recognize that our industry and a lot of folks in our industry view that as something separate from being human centered. And so for me, when I'm talking about diversity, equity, inclusion, whether it be in the workplace or in our industry, this is just about deepening our understanding of what it means to be human centered. And so 
I like to start at, you know, a place talking about cultural humility and competencies. Um, and when I'm talking about cultural humility, you know, I'm talking about, you know, the, the ability to maintain this interpersonal and interpersonal stance that is oriented towards openness to other people in relation to aspects of cultural identity that are most important to that other person. Um, so there's this element of how you communicate and relate to others, but also how you communicate and relate to yourself. And then, you know, when it comes to cultural competence, especially at an organizational level, you know, the way that this plays out is the ability to, to advocate effectively in the development of new theories, practices, policies, and organizational structures that are more responsive and inclusive to all groups. And so I think it's so important that, you know, especially within the UX community, we start having more conversations about deepening and understanding cultural humility and competencies and, and recognizing the resistances that, that many of us may consciously or unconsciously have towards that development. Yeah, thank you. I love that framing too. So I, I appreciate that. And, and then kind of, uh, as I tack back and forth, kind of inelegantly through our conversation, just back to humanity centered too, right? Because uh, for me, I, I, I loved when I read about that, you know, humanity versus human centered, because a lot of times in my design work, I talk about it being human centered. But can you tell me just a little bit more about kind of the intentionality behind humanity centered? Yeah, you know, I think, um, you know, the reason why I've been calling it humanity centered is I think it, it really beckons us to do the personal work to understanding and connecting with each other. Um, when you think about being able to elevate someone else's humanity, there that that gets into their well-being that gets into this more holistic understanding of that person and a desire to do right by that person um and so it's it's really just an opportunity to to start doing more of that personal work but really you know when i'm thinking about humanity centeredness especially within the realm of ux like i'm thinking about what i believe you know 2020 has surfaced for many of us which is that the world is incredibly broken, but yet there is an opportunity to change and influence systems and structures where everyone has the opportunity to flourish. And when you're thinking about that through the lens of someone else's humanity, the respect that deserves, the dignity that deserves, the care that deserves, and how we approach our research and design decisions and how we gauge stakeholders, that's when you can really start to dig into some of the richness um, and really the attention to detail to ourselves and to our work that's required to do this well. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, and could you tell me a little bit more about the, the detail and why those details are important? Yeah. I mean, those details are important because I think more times than not, um, the reason why those details are overlooked is because of privilege. Um, and so, you know, an awareness of privilege allows you to have an awareness of the details that tend to impact certain groups more than others. You know, I think one reason why we're starting to see this, this swell within the UX community around ethics, around diversity, equity, and inclusion is because you're starting to have more people, more voices in this space who are not white, able-bodied, cisgendered folks. And, you know, I always ask people, hey, who are some of the UX leaders today 
um, that, you know, you're thinking about or who come to mind. And when people, you don't ask that question, a lot of the people that are thinking about are white, able-bodied, cisgendered folks. Right. Um, and so with that comes, you know, there's research that shows that the more white, Judeo-Christian, middle-class you are, the less critical awareness skills you have. Because for marginalized communities and, you know, folks in the folks who identify as being minorities, you know, this is a survival skill, this critical awareness, this hyper attention to detail of how you're interacting with someone, how they're potentially perceiving you, um, and especially in the States. And so, you know, this element and this attention to detail is so critical so that we can start to challenge and really question uh, the way that we're approaching our design and UX decisions and making sure that we are not just catering towards the majority, but we're making sure that everyone and all is welcome and included. Thank you. Yeah, I know from from my design work and a lot of my academic background dealt with uh, teams and small group interaction and dynamics. And uh, one of the things that I'm happy about is that we're see now we're seeing the business value because I, sometimes I think, and you had mentioned this, like with stakeholders, sometimes it's hard you know, being human centered where it feels like, well, is doing the right thing at, at, uh, at odds with like profit motivation, right. And like being, you know, being human centered and, and one of the things we know about teams is uh, the more diverse the team, the better the output. Uh, yeah. And Harvard Business Review, I think it was last year, the year before, they even showed uh, the the relationship between uh, uh, team and company diversity and innovation and that those teams are more innovative. And when you were talking about uh, kind of white middle-class design, Judeo-Christian, uh, I feel seen here right now when you said, but, uh, yeah, and when you have, but when you have a, a, a same group of people, you're not, you're not going to ask questions, right, about, like, it's like, you're, you almost have the same worldview, and with that, you also have the same world blind spots, right, and, and, yeah. and it, it, so I think, yeah, you don't have that, that almost critical thinking muscle on, on even design elements, like, well, how, how might somebody else approach it? Because it, everything almost was like a self-referential design exercise. Yeah. Well, here's how I would use it. <laughs> right. And, and especially when you said like able-bodied or you know that, that language makes sense to me. I don't find that language offensive, even, you know, right. Even, even um, micro content in digital design. Right. And so I appreciate really, you know, framing up the, the importance of, of the diversity elements. And another thing too, that I'm, I'm starting to see more at this, this is also was in Harvard business brew, but it was also cognitive diversity is the more cognitively diverse the team, the faster they are at problem solving, where sure. I think the tension you would think it, well, if there's more people like me, right. We, we won't have that friction of how do we look at things differently, but turns out that diversity uh, is going to make you more innovative and, and it's going to make you a better problem solving team. So uh, that, I just think it's important that that, even that literature is coming out to try to, for me to try to kind of get, garner attention with more business school kind of mindset. Yeah. yeah. And I think like, you know, the diversity of, of thought and thinking is interesting. I think it's also one of those things that we have to be careful with because I, I see a lot of well-meaning companies who latch onto that idea and then what you end up doing is like, you're only hiring folks. For me, what that ends up doing is it 
it gives an out on not having to talk about racial prejudice, racial biases, ableism, and all of those factors. Um, and so then I'll see companies, I'll see teams hyper-focus on, all right, diversity of thought. Um, well, I went to Harvard, but you went to Yale. So that's diverse, right? Or you went to private school and I went to public school. So that's diversity of thought, right? right. And right. Um, I just, I've just i seen it just be used as, as a way to circumvent the, the element of work and really the element of emotional risk it takes to truly create these teams where you're able to actually get to that point of innovation. Because I think a lot of these, you know, articles, HBR and likewise, they'll talk about, hey, the business case for diversity, equity, and inclusion, the more diverse you are, the more innovative you are. But what they leave out in that conversation is it's not just having, you know, a bunch of, you know, Black people, Asian people, whatever in the room, but it's about the culture that allows for folks who come from different backgrounds and perspectives to feel like they can contribute without being judged, without it, you know, being held against them and so on and so forth. So, you know, it's an element of, and really a challenge of, to resist the temptation to over-index on diversity, which is, tends to, you know, shift into hiring, recruiting, you know, representation mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, under index on inclusion, which is culture, which right, is right. you know the ability to work in teams so that you can actually have those innovative outputs. And so you can have those creative juices where everyone's able to, to flow in and share freely. Um, and I think that's just so such an important conversation that, you know, UX industry at large needs to be having as well. Thank you. And and from my perspective, I feel like uh, the term inclusion is fairly new, right? There used to be like a lot of corporate diversity initiatives, but to, to your point, the the inclusion is the like this important part, right? The, the culture, because other otherwise, you know, was it just, are we just trying to get a demographic look or are we actually doing things for, for people to feel safe, supported, bring them be their best selves and you know, mutual respect for everybody at the table to have a voice. And uh, just as I've been talking to more diversity and inclusion people uh, in the podcast as well, I mean, and and I don't know if that, again, if that's just my my blind spot, right, as as a middle-aged white guy, but I, I remember diversity always in, in conversation business, but I don't remember inclusion. And I, to your point, I feel like that's kind of the important part or the secret sauce because it ties back to the the actual the culture of the the organization yeah and i would say inclusion has always probably been top of mind and on, on the radar for underrepresented minorities and folks um i think it's been it's something that's being talked about more as folks in the majority are starting to to be more acquainted with this work and what's needed to be done and so like for me i, I always think about um this illustration of do you you know that feeling when you're walking and um, your sock starts to slide off your foot <laughs> and it's just super uncomfortable, but you just like, I don't know, you just, you can't stop, you know, it's really busy. You just have to keep going, but you just, you feel that discomfort. You're constantly aware of it. Right. That's the experience that a lot of underrepresented minorities experience in the workplace and especially in UX in this field that preaches about 
being human centered and caring about people and yet talking so little about the personal work that needs to be done and the ways that our industry has caused harm. And so for many underrepresented minorities, you know, we are walking with that sock slid off our foot and just like, we are just aware that this is not meant to be this way, but we are used to dealing with that feeling and that experience. Um, and so, yeah. No, I re I really appreciate that. Thanks. Yeah. And, and uh, yeah, the, the uncomfortable that that struggles real <laughs> when when it's sliding off and like you said it's like i so I, I appreciate that analogy as soon as you said that too and especially when you're walking down a busy sidewalk i can't i'm gonna get run over if i stop or where where can i do this and so then how and if i'd extend that it's like and how much do i want to put up with this right mm. how, how much discomfort do i want to put up with um yeah, yeah well, and I oh go ahead no, I was going to say, like, I think that discomfort piece is really important. And it's, I think it's why you, it's why we have to start talking about, you know, some of like the resistances to developing, you know, cultural humility and competencies and, you know, understanding that discomfort is one of those factors. Um, you know, I've been thinking about um, Dr. Dr. Daryl Sue. So he's a professor of psychology and education at Columbia University you know, he's a, a pioneer scholar in the fields of multicultural psychology, multicultural counseling and therapy, the psychology of racism and anti-racism. And he's done tremendous research that reveals how resistances to cultural humility and competencies manifest itself. And it's, it shows up in three ways, emotional resistance, cognitive resistance, and behavioral resistance. With emotional resistances, you know, this is often this often happens when, you know, we're confronted with our biases and our prejudices. And, you know, we're exposed to the possibility of feeling a variety of emotions like guilt or shame or defensiveness or anger or helplessness because people often want to protect themselves against criticism or they don't want to reveal any personal shortcomings or they want to protect their self-image. And then you have cognitive resistances, which research shows often manifests itself in the form of denial. Um, and so this is denial through disbelief or unwillingness to reconsider or unwillingness to consider alternative scenarios or distortion, fabrication uh, and rationalizations are all mechanisms frequently used to prevent people from thinking about or discussing topics of racism, prejudice, bias, privilege, et cetera, in an honest manner. And that last part's really important, in yeah. an honest manner. Yeah. Um, you know, think about the times when you're having these conversations and you feel yourself withholding thoughts or questions that you might wanna share. And the last the last resistance that he talks about is uh, behavioral resistances, which more times than not, these resistances come from a place of fear you know, fear of isolation from colleagues and friends or fear of ostracism for speaking of things that generate discomfort or fear of rejection by those who may be offended by what we have to say or even like fear of losing privilege mm -hmm. or status for speaking in support of those who have been marginalized by society. And so to your point of, you know, when it comes to discomfort, you know, we have to start to, to practice and 
to really like deepen our, our language around the, the, the types of ways that we resist. Um, you know, the opportunity to extend and really engage in a level of emotional risk uh, in order to, to deepen our growth in these areas. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. Because just And as you were saying that, I was just feeling like just backing up early in our conversation about humanity centered and the vulnerability and support and kind of a positive flywheel with that, right? Being vulnerable to all those resistances and, and like having that honest conversation and a part yeah. of that too is how can we how can we support others in having that honest conversation and and then also in ourselves be vulnerable so that we we really can dig deep and kind of confront you know as 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 we as we talk about in design all the time right so that we can uh, work on the root causes right not the symptoms and can we really dig deep on this and are we creating a safe space for that conversation yeah. And like, what if we started to view vulnerability as a skill and actually committed time, energy, and resources to trying to understand and deepen that skill set? Like, imagine what the UX community could be and would be like in light of that mindset shift. That's powerful. Right. Right. Yes. So I want to back up a little bit too. One of the things that I'm fascinated by with your background is that you also have an academic background in theological studies. I do. Not a lot of people know that either. <laughs> I have my master's in theological studies. And what, what was the journey or path there? Oh, wow. Yeah. So, um, so I have my master's in counseling and then I also have a master's in theological studies and I have a bachelor's in urban studies. And, you know, for me, you know, I, I identify as a Christian, um, but in general, I've always been really interested in understanding uh, the deeper things that motivate people. Um, and for me, like, I think spirituality is, uh, it's a component of being human and, and how we operate and find meaning and value in the world. For some folks, that is going to church and, you know, having fellowship with people. And for others, it's gardening. Or it's, you know, being out in nature and going on a hike. But, you know, my path towards getting my master's in theological studies, um, you know, it actually happened shortly after I had, um, you know, a near-death experience. I, I you know, I've, I've been always the healthiest person in my family in the, about, ooh, maybe like a, a couple years before I, you know, was diagnosed with this very rare kidney disease. I had this, you know, um, this scare in the hospital where I was literally weaning, you know, weaving in and out of this coma. And, you know, doctors were telling my, my mom to think about funeral arrangements. And, you know, they, they came back and they were like, Hey, don't worry. We were able to figure it out. Um, you know, it's this, you know, kidney disease called minimal change disease, but don't worry. Thank God. It's not something called FSGS. It's a much more serious thing. So I was on a bunch of medication, went into remission and was doing better. And then a couple years later, um, this was maybe like a year uh, before I started that master's program, I came out of remission and the doctors uh, told me that they had actually misdiagnosed me and I had FSGS. And I was in stage five or stage five end stage renal failure. They were giving me 13 years to live. Um, and, you know, me and my partner at the time were talking about death and uh, just coming to terms about, hey, like, I actually might die. And what does that mean for 
how I want to pursue my life and how do I want to move forward in things. And I, you know, for me, I had to come to this place of acceptance that, Hey, like I'm, I'm going to die, but I'm going to make the most of it. Uh, so I was in the hospital for about a month and uh, we ended up going back to the doctors to, you know, start the paperwork for dialysis and kidney transplant stuff. And the doctor came into the room and was like, Hey, I'm, I'm looking at your last lab results. And I don't know what to tell you, but your kidneys have improved by over 50% and legally we can't even put you on the list anymore. Um, so that was about seven ish years ago. And, uh, today my kidneys are at normal kidney function and they've been at normal kidney function the last seven years. So I I'm a, I'm a walking and breathing miracle. And, you know, after that experience, I was just like, Hey, like, I, I just want to explore more about how people understand, you know, spirituality, how do they understand, you know, these deeper things that motivate and guide us. And that's what ended me towards my master's in theological studies, where I also got to do just deeper studies and, and things like, you know, theology of suffering, um, which is still such a hard thing for me and think something I'm still grappling with. But mm-hmm. um, I will say that my degree in theology is probably one of the, the best ones that prepared me for being a researcher, because as you're when you're getting your, your master's in theological studies, you're constantly told that context is everything uh that you need to understand the context around certain situations around literature and it's so important in order to have a a fuller picture of the person the author etc etc and so yeah (laughs) thank you that's i and thank you for sharing i didn't realize what an emotional roller coaster uh from a health perspective i never so thank you for for sharing that yeah, absolutely. And you know, for me, it's um, my close friends will tell you that uh, I'm always thinking about death. Uh, and not not in like a suicidal way, but I'm just so aware of the brevity of life that mm-hmm. I'm much more willing to, to speak my mind about things. I'm much more willing to take a risk, whether that be career or personal wise. Um, and I, I really am trying to, to make the most of um, every moment that I have on this side of eternity. Um, and so my, my close friends will tell you that that's, that's what drives me. That's what, what motivates me to, to care deeply for people and making sure that I'm, uh, again, not wasting my life. So awesome. Yeah. Thanks so much for sharing that. And one of our earlier conversations too, as you were talking about context, if I'm remembering this correctly too, as a researcher, as a theological researcher, it was tracking you. One of the big important things for you was tracking down original source. Yeah. Am I yeah, remembering yeah. that right? Is like, okay, so here, here's how it's been presented. And there's this tiny frame, but let me go dig in. And what was, what was the source where this came from? And then what was the original source? And even drawing into question, is that presentation layer even uh, faithful to the source material. Am I remembering that correctly? Yeah, a hundred percent. And you know, my my first assignment for this, you know, theological program I was in was, you know, we were uh, we were given this book, and this book was written like you know a few years ago. And in the book, it had talked about this tradition in ancient Roman times where the father would lift up the child as a symbol of them being accepted into the family. And there's a footnote next to that reference. And so our homework assignment was to to trace all the way back, follow all the footnotes back to the original source. So 
you end up in, you know, the Oxford English Dictionary, you end up in some like Latin writing of a philosopher. And at the end of this journey, you end up at this piece of papyrus paper where you find out that it's all a lie. <laughs> um, and then you have to write a research paper on how you found and discovered that this was all a lie. And I'll never forget this. My, you know, theology professor, the next day in class after, you know, receiving our papers, he just looked at us and was like, you need to learn how to question and challenge everything and go back to the original source. Um, and so, and really just giving us that permission to, to question, to dig, but also to give us the tools of how do you trace it back to, you know, the original piece of, of data or, or artifact that, that upholds this, you know, particular argument. So it was probably the most frustrating uh, school assignments I've ever experienced, but it's definitely one that has continued to leave a mark on, on me and, and how I think about my work in the world. Awesome. So uh, in, in the spirit of self-care, um, what, what do you like to do to recharge? Yeah, what give, um, what gives you energy? Like to, uh, not talking to people. That's definitely, <laughs> that's real. Like, Especially this asshole. <laughs> no, no. Like for me, I, yeah. I, um, like on Mondays and Tuesdays, I just, I don't plan anything after work or anything. No, no phone calls, no social distance walks. Like that is bib time. Um, it's time for me <laughs> to, to chill. It's time for me to, to catch up on a TV show, to go on a walk, you know, I live downtown in Chicago, so I'm trying to be outside a lot before this winter comes. So riding my bike along the lake, you know, lately I've been getting into this practice that I had a, a colleague actually recommend this to me of listening to an audiobook and coloring. And I have found just like the repetition of, of coloring while listening to this audiobook is something that has just been really restorative and it's helped me to just like focus and be grounded and just like be present. Um, because I think for me, self-care is about slowing down and being still. I'm a very, I'm moving a million miles an hour. I have a lot of things on my plate. And so self-care is about just being still and present and being hyper aware of that for me. Um, so it even plays out in things like working out. Um, you know, lately I've, been trying to teach myself how to play Fortnite because my um, best friend and their extended family, they'll play Fortnite. And I'm, you know, I, I will admit that um, winning is fun for me. Like there's no like, oh, let me figure this out and die a million times and it's okay. I'm with friends and family. That's great. Like, no, like I want to win. Um, so <laughs> I've been, you know, fumbling my way, figuring out how to play Fortnite and to actually like get to a place where I feel confident to, to really dive in and, and play with them. But, but yeah, it's, um, it's definitely more of an art than, than a science when it comes to self-care. <laughs> and uh, part of the reason I'm chuckling so much is uh, my, uh, through COVID, my sixth grader uh, convinced me to start playing Fortnite. <laughs> so stressful. It's so stressful. <laughs> You know, I typically don't like games where I'm being chased or someone's trying to kill me. So it's, it's a lot. I'm, I'm 
I'm learning a lot about myself in this experience. Yeah. Yeah. I like to like, and, and my, my general approach to the game is I'm still trying to find it. Like, where do I jump off the bus so that I'm away from people? And can I, can I just linger for a while? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh goodness. But, um, but yeah, you know, I think for me, um, you know, having a creative outlet is really important to, to my self-care regimen, whether that is I'm coloring, um, you know, I'm discovering um, new things that I can do in Fortnite, uh, whatever that may be, you know, having something where I'm able to have an element of, of control, an element of creative um, nuance is something that has been really therapeutic and restorative to me. That's great. Thank you for sharing that. Uh, one last kind of topic area for me is uh, with with guests. I tend to ask about advice, and you know, I'm stealing from Austin Kleon's book, "Steal Like an Artist." He says that when we're giving advice, we're usually just talking to our younger self. But I'm I'm curious uh, from your perspective, what's some good advice that you received in your life that helps guide you, or uh, and or both, all of the above, none of the above. Uh, also, what might be advice that uh, you have, like you know, advice that you wish you would have heard earlier in your journey? Yeah, so for that first question, advice that I've received that I continue to carry with me, um, the first thing that comes to mind was, uh, I have a colleague who I deeply respect and adore and I remember, you know, when I was first adjusting to, you know, being at my company and, you know, you're navigating political things, you're navigating how things work. And she told me, she's like, you know, if there's something that you want to do or something that you want to push um, and, you know, someone tells you no, you're asking the wrong person. And I just loved that. And like, I think for me, it's given me permission to, to continue to fight for things that I think, you know, that I, I believe deeply in and things that, um, you know, I have a, a level of conviction about. Um, and it's also just helped me to, to just network really well, uh, and, you know, in my current workplace. And so that's something that I really appreciate and something that I continue to carry with me, you know, if you know you have a, a passion for something, a dream, a vision, a conviction over something, and you present it to someone and they say no, you're asking the wrong person. Um, and so move on to, to finding that person that will support you and in what you believe and are convicted in. That's when it comes crazy. to advice, yeah, no, I love it. Uh, <laughs> when it comes to advice that um, you know I give, and I think I like that framing that you said of advice that I'd give to my younger self. Um, I think it's, it's two things. One is I would have encouraged myself to, especially as, as a black woman in corporate, I would have encouraged myself to find that community of black women, um, sooner than later, because there are moments when you are experiencing, you know, work, you're experiencing this industry and you're, you understand why people leave it. Um, it can be really, uh, it can be a really discouraging and lonely experience as an underrepresented minority in this field that preaches to be human centered with a lot of folks in the industry who don't want to talk about the difficult things required to actually do it. And so I would have told myself to find that community sooner than later. I have that community now, but I definitely yeah. would have benefited from having it sooner in my career. 
Um, and then the other thing that I just would have reminded myself is don't let anyone take your voice away. Um, even yourself, you know, it's, it can be easy to get into your head. It can be easy to, you know, listen to, you know, even current UX leaders who have this um, understanding of what does it mean to be a leader and having that kind of get to you and keep your thoughts to yourself. But, you know, especially today, I think we are on the precipice of, you know, a lot of leaders who have been able to get to that position in UX um, and are basing that off of tenure. I think we're coming to a place in our industry where we're starting to see a shift where, oh, it actually doesn't necessarily matter as much as your tenure, but the relevancy and actual impact you're having on pushing the field. Yeah. And I'm seeing a lot of those voices come from underrepresented and marginalized communities. And that excites me. Um, and so in that same spirit, you know, I would say to folks who are listening to this, don't let anyone take your voice away. You have an idea, share it. It doesn't matter if, you know, someone says it's not important or someone says, oh, what right do you have to share that? Um, speak your truth and see where it lands. That's great. Thank you. In the spirit of UX type, uh, UX research type uh, interviews, are, are there are there any topics we didn't cover today that you thought we might before we sat down? Um, <laughs> I mean, we covered a lot, uh, honestly. Yeah. Um, I I appreciate I appreciate your questions. I, I appreciated you bring up the the theology background. A lot not a lot of people know about that. Um, or know how that influences my approach to people, my work, and my life. So. No, I think I think from uh you know just our short time together we covered quite an interesting amount of topics so I love it. <laughs> Great, thank you so much. Uh, you know I'm a big fan of your work so it was it was an absolute honor to have you on the podcast. I really appreciate you taking the time. No, thanks for having me and for for being patient and yeah. us setting this up. I'm I'm excited and um, honored to be here. <laughs>